Awesome. Good morning. How are you? Did you guys have a good time yesterday? Good, man. Uh, really do appreciate you guys. Love, love, love being here with you. Love your church. And uh, just super, super humbled by this opportunity. I love getting to serve men. Um, I love getting to talk to men. This is probably one of the greatest joys in my ministry. Um, just because I respect and appreciate the design of God in man. And I, I really believe that the vacuum that's been created in the culture and in the church um, is a vacuum that can only be filled by men that are captured by the gospel and full of the Holy Spirit and are ready to actually be men that reflect Jesus. And so this is a big joy for me. Um, I really do genuinely believe that your city could be changed if the Lord sees fit to really grab the hearts of the guys in this room. I, I believe that. I believe your churches can be changed. I believe your neighborhoods can be changed. Your families can be changed. When God wants to do something great on earth, he raises up men. And that doesn't mean he doesn't use women. He, he certainly uses women. But when he wants to start a movement, he uses men as catalysts to lead movements. And movements sometimes are um, things that start in homes. And they start with discipling kids. And they start with actually walking across the street to serve and love neighbors. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. And then we're going to dive into this. And my prayer is that whatever it is that Jesus has in his heart to do as the senior pastor of your church, that he would accomplish that today and in the next couple of minutes. And we'll just sort of, with expectancy, open scripture and hope that he does something really cool. So let me pray for you guys. Father, this is a great honor for me to get to stand in front of brothers. Um, Lord, I know that there are all kinds of different struggles in the room. There's all kinds of different insecurities. There's all kinds of different idols. Um, Lord, I'm no different. And we just thank you that actually we're naked in front of you. God, you know what's up. <laughs> you know our hearts better than we know our hearts. Where we're still confused about what our motivations are and who we are, you're not confused. You actually get us. And Lord, you're the one that searches the heart of man. And we pray that you would do that today, that you would reveal to us our hearts and that you would work in our hearts and that you would help us to be the kind of men who are not full of bravado and silly uh, faux masculinity, but instead that there would be like real, deep, sacrificial manliness in these men. Um, not masculinity as defined by a truck or a beard, but masculinity as defined by Jesus taking responsibility, laying down our lives, getting our hands dirty, serving and loving our city, worshiping Jesus with all of our hearts. So, Lord, would you help us? Would you come and be with us, Jesus? Would you just come and be with us through the person of the Holy Spirit? Give us greater affection for you. Give us greater urgency. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So if you have a Bible with you, you can go to uh, 2 Timothy. We're going to get there in a little bit. It's going to take us a few minutes to set this up. What I'd like to do is sort of Take a couple minutes and, and maybe run a bit of diagnostic on our culture. Before we talk about how the gospel addresses men, and in particular how the gospel really builds a foundation for masculine culture in the church, and, and by the way, just as a side note, um, I personally don't care a rip for men's ministries, but I care a lot for men's culture in churches. You know what I mean? Um, I, I'm not really one of the guys that's a huge proponent of, of men's ministries as much as I am having a robust culture of men in a church. 
uh, a bunch of men loving Jesus and giving and serving and engaging. And so before we get to how Jesus really forms a men's culture in the church, let's just talk about the culture in general. Let's just take a second and put our finger on the pulse of culture. Uh, if you're in the mall and you see one of those maps, the little red dot that says you are here, let, let's do a bit of a you are here moment so that we can get some context for what the situation is. Let me start by reading from a book called Boys Adrift. Fantastic book written by a guy who's a sociologist and PhD as well. And here's what he says. Uh, death rates among children and teenagers in the United States due to cancer and unintentional injuries have dropped by more than 50% in the past 50 years. So that's fantastic, right? But listen to this. Over the same 50 years, homicide rates among U.S. youth have risen by more than 130%. Suicide rates have risen by 140%. Suicide is now the third leading cause of death among Americans 18 years of age. Among Americans aged 15 to 19 years, young men are five times more likely to kill themselves than young women are. And among Americans aged 20 to 24 years of age, young men are seven times more likely to kill themselves than women are. So there, there's a problem here. In the USA, every second, $3,076 on average is spent on porn, every second. It's a multi-billion dollar industry that brings in more revenue than professional basketball, football, and baseball combined. Fatherlessness in the United States has tripled since 1960. Since 1960. Um, we, we can most likely open up the mic and share our stories, and many of the dudes in this room have been affected by absentee or neglectful dads. One half of males 18 to 34 years old play video games for three hours a day or more. Um, I'm not saying playing video games is sinful, but I am saying that playing video games for three hours a day is a real, real, it, it's a real problem. And it really shows that there's a whole generation of dudes that are not living for anything bigger than recreation and escape. Homosexuality in the United States has successfully been framed as a civil rights issue. So now instead of being able to preach about biblical sexuality and to call all people to repentance, whether your sexual bend is lusting for women or cohabitating with a woman or looking at porn or wanting to sleep with another man, um, the gospel is supposed to be this equal opportunity offender that calls us all sinners and calls us all to repentance because of our broken sexuality. Uh, but today, the civil rights um, view of homosexuality is that if you oppose same-sex marriage, um, you're essentially a racist. You're a bigot. 69% of boys are experiencing their first exposure to porn between 10 and 14 years old. 69%. Um, and many times the age is as young as 9 for first experience of porn. 68% of all girls face their first exposure to porn around age 13. So think about this. Um, porn is not only very common among men, but, but it's growing astronomically among women as well. Eight out of ten boys were exposed to porn before they left the eighth grade. Eight out of ten. And estimated that on average, U.S. citizens hear about 3,000 advertisements each day, and a huge percentage of them are explicitly about sexuality. Slightly more than half of American teenagers aged 15 to 19 have engaged in oral sex. That's slightly more than half. If you're a parent, that should scare the hell out of you with females and males reporting similar levels of experience according to the most comprehensive 
studies and surveys. Um, so what about marriage? If that's just individual sexuality and brokenness, how, how are we doing with our view of covenant in the United States? Well, right now there's nearly 6 million couples cohabitating right now. So that's friends with benefits, that's shacking up, that's getting together, living together, playing house without a covenantal commitment. Cohabitation has increased tenfold since 1970. 60 to 75% of couples in their first marriages are cohabitating, and 80 to 85% cohabitate before their wedding. Uh, most studies clearly find that cohabitation before marriages decreases the satisfaction of marriage and actually increases the probability of divorce. So it's, it's not that people are training for good marriages, they're, they're training for divorce. They're learning how to take without covenantal responsibility. It's predicted that 40% of all kids will at some point live in a household where the husband and wife are cohabitating, or excuse me, the man and the woman. Almost two-thirds of teenage boys believe that it's a good idea to live together before marriage. Now, think about this. Um, our culture that is sexually broken and our culture that is running from covenant and running from responsibility is also increasingly violent, especially among young men. In 2005, 1,181 women were murdered by intimate partners. That's an average of three women every day being slaughtered by someone that they're involved with. According to the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control, women experience 4.8 million intimate partner-related physical assaults and rapes each year. Less than 20% of battered women sought medical treatment following an injury. According to the National Crime Victimization Survey, which includes crimes that were not reported to the police, 232,960 women in the U.S. were raped or sexually assaulted in 2006. Uh, that's more than 600 women every single day being raped and assaulted. UCLA psychologist Neil McMuth did a survey among male students studying attraction and sexual aggression. And in his research, he took those students and he found that 16% and... Uh, between 16% and 20% of the male respondents said that they would, think about this, they would commit rape. These are the kids that are admitting it. Between 16 to 20% of the respondents said they would rape a woman if they were certain that they would get away with it without getting caught. And here's where it gets really crazy. When he changed the word rape to force a woman to have sex, <sighs> between 36% and 44% said that they would, as long as they were certain that they would not be caught. In another study, 15% of college men said that they had actually used force to obtain sexual intercourse, a rate that does seem to collaborate the stats. So, friends, um, Stuff's jacked up in our culture. Our view of sexuality is jacked up. Our view of masculinity is jacked up. But here's the problem. It's not just out there in the culture. It's easy to, at this point, think that the church is killing it and to pick up stones and throw rocks at a sinful culture that's supposed to act sinfully. But here's what you need to see. 
um, the church has failed to address the issues of masculinity. The church has avoided this topic. The church has punted on raising up real men. Let me give you some data to support that statement. The typical U.S. congregation draws an adult crowd that is 61% female and 39% male. On any given Sunday, there are 13 million more women than men in American churches. 25% of married church-going women will worship without their husbands. Midweek activities draw 70 to 80% female participants. The majority of church employees are actually women. Over 70% of boys who are raised in church, listen to this, over 70% of the boys who are raised in church will abandon it in their teens and 20s, and most of those boys will never return to the church. More than 90% of American men believe in God, according to studies. Five out of six call themselves Christians, but only one out of six attends church. It is just not seen as relevant to men in our culture. Churches overseas report a gender gap of up to nine women for every adult man in church. Christian universities are becoming convents. The typical Christian college in the U.S. enrolls two women for every one man. And fewer than 10% of U.S. churches are able to establish or maintain a vibrant men's ministry or men's culture. So the church is punted on this. And by the way, if you don't believe me, just walk into the typical Christian bookstore. It is not a place that dudes are going to feel welcome. <laughs> You're going to walk in, and there's going to be pulpery. Um, there's going to be pastel colors on the walls. There are going to be precious moments figurines, right? Um, all the art is going to be like Thomas Kincaid stuff with a deer standing there and just light washing over. It's going to be beautiful and cutesy. Why? Because they're going after the main market share of who attends church, and it's ladies. K-Love, the large Christian radio broadcasting organization, builds all of their programming around an imaginary lady named Kathy, who's 40 years old, soccer mom who drives a minivan. So here's what's happening. Um, the church has just said, we're not even going to try to reach the dudes. Somewhere around 1,000 years ago, two things happened in the church that are still affecting our lack of relevancy to men. The first was bridal mysticism. Um, bridal mysticism misunderstood the nature of being the bride of Christ. We are together as Christians the bride of Christ, correct? But you're not individually the bride of Christ. And what started happening in the Middle Ages was that um, teaching on our relationship with Jesus started to take on very romantic sexual overtones. And it became an individual deal. It became Jesus romancing you and, and Jesus walking you down the aisle and individually you being swept off your feet by Jesus. And there is a picture of intimacy in the scripture, but it's a kind of intimacy that we can experience with Jesus, um, not as a sexual lover, but as a brother and as a best friend. It's a relationship with Jesus that's available, that is deep and intimate, that's actually better than the love of a woman, but it's different. And what's happened in the church is we've romanticized Jesus and we've told dudes that they just need to come in and they need to let Jesus um, lift the veil off their face. I actually heard a pastor say that one time, that he likes to imagine himself walking down the aisle and he's veiled and in prayer Jesus comes to him and lifts the veil off of his face. And I just started vomiting in my mouth. Okay? Um, Jesus doesn't want you to run your fingers through his hair. And, and 
And so in the church, we, we, we started adapting ourselves to this view of intimacy and worship that was really sexual in nature, and we just started losing dudes by the truckloads. Um, and then we started lowering the standard of what it means to be an elder in the church. Um, when we adopted celibacy as the standard of the priesthood, we really shot ourselves in the foot. And, and we stopped holding up models of godly husbanding and godly masculinity and godly fathering of children, and we made that something dirty and weak in the church. In addition to that, we started teaching um, this whole clergy-laity divide, where there's really two, um, th there's two classes of Christians there are the really holy, set-apart Christians like me who are called to the ministry, and then there are second-rate Christians like you guys who are the laity. Okay, you know what? Nothing could be further from what the Bible teaches. And as we started holding up that clergy-laity divide, what started happening is um, guys who worked regular jobs were discounted in their spiritual walk with Jesus. Guys who swung hammers and guys who went to work and guys who built businesses really didn't have a place at the table. They were discounted and they started leaving church because they weren't even honored and respected as missionaries in the culture. And so today, as we dig into building a healthy masculine culture, I just want you to see that the stakes are stinking high, man. Um, our city needs men that love Jesus and are willing to lay down their lives for Christ. Your church needs it. Your family needs it. You want it, whether you believe it or not. You were created to reflect our God, who is a giver, our God, who is humble, our God, who is a warrior. You were made in his image, and you are longing to reflect him more effectively through the work of Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to give you a quick picture of what a healthy male culture might look like. And it's not a, it's not a, sanctified picture. It's not a Christian picture, uh, but it's a picture nonetheless of why this matters. A sociologist went to an all-boys school for a graduation, and in that all-boys school, he looked out during graduation, and it was just full of girls, just girls all over the place in this all-boys school. And after the graduation, he walked up to a group of girls, and he said, man, these boys sure have a lot of sisters. And the girls all chuckled and said, well, we're not their sisters. And the guy responded, well, then you must be their girlfriends. And the girl said, no, we're not their girlfriends either. We're just their friends. He goes on and he says this. This is amazing. Um, so what are you girls doing here, he asks. Why would you want to hang out here at a boys' school when you could have boys at your own school, when you have boys at your own school? One girl rolled her eyes. The boys at our school are all such total losers. I'd like to read that like my 12-year-old girl, uh, but I'm not going to use the word totes. Being around them is like being around my younger brother. They're loud and obnoxious and annoying. And they think that they're so tough, it's totally nauseating. <laughs> the other girls laughed and nodded their agreement. And the boys here are really different. The boys here are like gentlemen. I know that sounds really strange and weird and old-fashioned, the girl says, but that's the way it is. Like they stand up when you come into a room. They open doors for you. They don't interrupt you, another girl said, interrupting. <laughs> I hate trying to talk when guys, with guys at our school because they're always interrupting you. You should come here some weekend, they say to the doctor, Dr. Sachs. You would totally not even know that this is a boys' school. There are probably more girls here than boys on the weekend. We just totally mob the place, not even to hang out with the boys necessarily, Last week, a bunch of us girls came down to the hockey rink here at the school just to slide on the ice. Just us girls. 
The doctor asked him, but why bother come to this school at all? You could have all just gone to a public ice skating rink. She shook her head and said, no, it wouldn't be the same. It's fun to hang out here. Now listen to this, because it feels safe. Why does this issue matter? Because there are broken people in our city. There are broken women in our churches. There are single moms that need the gospel. And what we need is to have a church that feels safe to a broken world. And that does not happen with emasculated men. That does not happen with passive men. That happens with men who are changed by Jesus and who offer a grace-driven strength to those that are in need. We want to be churches that are safe for people that are hurting and broken and afflicted. We want to offer a strength to the world that's a strength that Jesus is working in us. We want this. This is what we're fighting for. So take your Bibles. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, an older man is discipling a younger man. And I believe that 2 Timothy 2 is a really beautiful picture of a healthy masculine culture. It's an older man who loves Jesus, discipling a younger man who loves Jesus to turn around and train other men to follow and love Jesus. And so look at what he says. We're going to read verses 1 down through 9, and then we're going to talk about a few of these as time allows. Starting in verse 1, he says this. Um, who, somebody with an ESV, stand up and read it loud so we can all hear it. Uh, read, you, start, you read verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to get another dude to read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of God. Uh, no, 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 2 Timothy 2, 1. Got it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits because his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Good. Somebody jump up and read 5 through 9. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring. Good, man. And then I'll end with verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is writing to Timothy about a robust culture that affects men and women, but it is a masculine culture that is needed in the church. Let me give you a few things from this text about that culture. What is needed, number one, are grace-strengthened men. Grace-strengthened men. Verse 1 says, You then, my child, be strengthened, not by bravado, not by bench-pressing, not by machoism, not by faux-masculinity, but by what? The grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is the big idea. The world is in desperate need of men with grace-driven strength. Churches are in need of grace-driven men with a strength to offer. First of all, there are guys giving up on strength altogether, are there not? Uh, we, we live in a culture right now where 
Um, there's a phenomenon called guys or bros or dudes or lads, depending on where you live. And the big idea is that guys are running from responsibility and strength with absolute determination to never get caught by it. Here's what John Piper and Wayne Grudem says about masculinity. Think about how different this is than the dude bro culture in which we live. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. What they're saying is this, masculinity is not about taking but giving. But we live in a culture where in particular the younger generation are adapting this man-boy taker stance as it relates to the world in which we live. We live in a culture where men are taught to take, take, take from their parents. It's not uncommon for men in their 30s to be moving back home to live with mom and dad so they don't have to pay rent. We live in a culture where men take from church if they attend at all. Uh, we, we looked up about four years ago in our church and realized that in a given month, we had somewhere around 8,000 attenders and, and we had 600 giving units a month. You know what that means? That's a bunch of dudes that are takers. There's no ownership. They're just renting in the church. We have a culture where men are taking from the government and most importantly, we have a culture where women are being sucked dry by men that are taking. Women are objectified and they're used for their bodies and appearance and then they're maternalized and turned into mommy 2.0 for little boys that need a mommy to wipe his bottom. So we live in this weird cultural moment where there are men, um, instead of growing up to take responsibility to lay down their lives and yield a strength, there's actually a posture of taking. There's an emptiness. There's a vacuum in our souls and we as men are sucking people into that vacuum. And then there's guys who are not giving up on strength altogether, uh, but there's guys in our culture who are developing their own faux masculinity that looks like strength. We, we live in this weird cultural moment where there's a resurgence um, in robust appearances of masculinity, right? This is a weird moment where it's super cool to have a beard and wear flannel and drive a truck and drink beer and bow hunt and uh, by the way, I'm just technically for all those things, <laughs> but, but that doesn't equal masculinity. Are, are, are you tracking with me? Um, there's a resurgence of men's blogs out there that tell you what a man should look like and how a man should smell and how a man should drink an old-fashioned, and I just want to say none of that stuff has anything to do with real masculinity whatsoever. Some of those manly men in our church are artsy-fartsy dudes in skinny jeans. They just love Jesus, and they may finger paint, right? But, but they're laying down their lives for their wives. So, so this is not about, track with me, um, real strength is not about giving up on strength and just being a taker. And real strength is not about being strong in yourself or just having an appearance of strength. It's not about a moralistic strength. Um, it's not about a suck it up and just try to get it done strength. When we have faux masculinity because we're hiding, up our, we're, we're hiding and covering up our brokenness and need through work and through idols that look really good on the outside. What Henry David Thoreau said is definitely going to be true of us. He said, most men live lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. So what's the big idea? He says to Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, hey, Timothy, be strengthened 
with the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He says, Timothy, you got a job to do that's really hard, man. Um, you're trying to pastor. You're trying to be a missionary. You're trying to serve people. You're in a difficult city. You've got tons of critics. You've got people that hate your guts. You've got a body that's physically weak from being worn down over years of stressful ministry. And he says to him, you need strength, man. You don't need to give up on strength. And you don't need to have this bravado, fake, chauvinistic strength. You need to have strength that's rooted and grounded in the grace of Jesus Christ because that's real strength. That's real masculinity. So what's he driving at? Here's what he's saying. We need dependent men, not independent men, not self-made men, not men who boast in what they can accomplish, but we actually need humble men, dependent men, who boast in the strength of the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul boasted in his weakness so that God's strength could be magnified. And by the way, um, Paul's just a manly guy. Uh, got beaten by rods, got shipwrecked. Like you've, you're having a bad day if you get shipwrecked and, and then you survive the wreckage to crawl out onto the beach and then you get bitten by a poisonous snake. That day sucks, okay? And, and for that dude to keep on going, let's just admit, he, he was a gritty, grisly dude, right? He was tough, he was manly. But here's what he said continually, man. I boast in my weakness that the strength of God would be magnified. It's not about how tough I am or how awesome I am. It's about how sinful I am and how amazing God is that he would use me and rescue me. Paul boasted in his weakness that the power of Jesus Christ working in and through him could be shown off. Grace-strengthened men are justified by Jesus, not their jobs. Grace-strengthened men are justified by Jesus, not the appearance of their wives. Grace-strengthened men are justified by Jesus, not how much money they have in their bank account. Grace-strengthened men are justified by Jesus, not their bodies. Grace-strengthened men, grace-strengthened men are adopted by Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection, and their identity is wrapped up in who God says they are through the finished work of the cross. And they become, in turn, the kind of men whose identity is so secure that they have a strength to offer that's not even their own. See, there's an alien strength inside of a great strength in man. There's a strength that's not even from you, man. It's a strength that God has put inside of you through the person of the Holy Spirit as He's lavished His grace on you. We must refuse to let culture define what a real man is. Jesus is the ultimate and only perfect real man. Jesus models, redeems, and empowers real masculinity. So as God builds a culture of men that are grace-strengthened men, we've got to define masculinity as Jesus defines masculinity. Jesus is working in you today that you might be a grace-strengthened man for your family, church, and city. And he is also the model for what it looks like as you grow up and become a grace-strengthened man. So let me give you just a few things about Jesus, the ultimate real man. Let me tell you a few things about Christ. First of all, Jesus takes responsibility. He takes responsibility. Jesus worked a job. Jesus provided for his single mom through his labor, through his work, and even when he was hanging on a cross. I mean, if ever there was a day to punt on taking responsibility for somebody else, it's when you're being crushed under the weight of the world's sins. But what does he say to his buddy John as he's hanging from the tree? He says, hey, hey man, that's your mom now. Take care of my mom. Jesus takes responsibility. He takes responsibility. 
for other people's sins on the cross. Jesus takes responsibility to pursue, protect, provide, lead, and cherish His bride, the church. He takes so much responsibility for the church that He even takes responsibility for the sanctification of His church. He tells us that He's actually working that she might be without spot or blemish or any such thing. Jesus so takes responsibility for His bride that He's working throughout history to finish the good work that He started 2,000 years ago. At the heart of redeemed masculinity in Christ is a desire to take responsibility through the power of the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? Well, it starts with taking responsibility for yourself. I love your church. And I imagine that what would happen in one year of a group of men taking full responsibility for themselves under Jesus would be nothing less than a move of God. Because instead of blaming pastors and blaming spouses and blaming bosses for where we are, if we repented of sin and took responsibility to fully surrender and follow Jesus, the sky's the limit of what could happen. It also means taking responsibility for our wives. Um, let, let me put it to you like this. This is how I heard one pastor say it. Everything your wife does is not your fault, but everything that happens in your home is your responsibility. Let me say it again. Not everything that happens in your home is your fault, but everything that happens in your home is your responsibility. And what Jesus is looking for is not just for you to have a good first day of finding a wife and having a big wedding. He's looking for you to have a really beautiful last day when either you get put in the ground having served her well, or she gets put in the ground being way more radiant than she was on the day that she met you. It means taking responsibility for our kids, not punting their education to their teachers and not teaching them about the world that we live in, not punting their spiritual formation to the kids' ministers in our churches. You are the pastor of your home. You are. And at the end of the day, when you stand before Jesus and Jesus asks you to give an account for your wife and for your children, you can't say, well, Brian did a sucky job of building a great kids' ministry. Jesus is going to look at you and say, no, you were the pastor of your home. You were. And Brian served you well to the best of his ability, and you have to take responsibility for what's happening in your house. In addition, it means taking responsibility for our church. Taking responsibility for our church. Um, there are not two classes of Christians, the called and the uncalled. There aren't the guys that have a really beautiful calling like Brian and Steve. Um, and then there's the rest of us who just sort of get to watch the gifted, talented, anointed people do ministry. That's total hogwash. There are offices in the church, but the point of those offices, Ephesians says, is to train and equip the saints for ministry. That means every single man in this room that loves and follows Jesus is a minister and a missionary. Every one of us. Every one of us have been gifted and called. And what that means is the church is a place where pastors and leaders train and equip men and women to share the load of proclaiming and demonstrating the goodness of God. It means we take responsibility for our church, man. Uh, we own it. We own it. And then we take responsibility for our city. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He was moved with compassion for his city. Um, he had skin in the game for his city. And that is to be our calling as well. 
Jesus takes responsibility, but in addition to that, Jesus is tough. He's tough. And I get that some guys have tried to portray Jesus as sort of like an MMA fighter, and um, though that's probably not very historically accurate, neither are the pictures of Jesus wearing pastel women's clothing. Right? Jesus didn't look like the fifth member of the band Hanson. Didn't have his hair part in the middle, straightened, you know, walking around, always glowing, holding a lamb in one hand, a baby in the other hand. Jesus didn't just float around from, you know, jam band concert to jam band concert, playing hacky sack and smelling like patchouli. <laughs> Jesus was a man, right? He was a man. And, and Jesus was actually a tough man because Jesus fought temptation. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness and, and was so tough that he faced Satan so that his perfect righteousness could be credited to us. He did so without, tempta- without giving in to temptation. It's pretty pretty freaking amazing. Jesus was tough. He faced demons. Um, Jesus walks into regions, and and the demons recognize him better than the people did. The demons pee their pants. Are you here to torture us? Jesus says, shut up. Come out. Jesus faced opposition. He faced opposition from his own family that thought that he was nuts. He faced opposition from his friends, guys like Peter who were supposed to get his back, who tried to talk him out of going to the cross. He faced opposition from the religious leaders. He faced opposition from the Romans. Jesus walks into the temple with a whip one day. Right? Like you, don't, you don't frolic into a temple to cleanse it. Jesus walked into the temple with a handmade whip, which is just kind of bad A all there by itself. Dude made a whip. And then proceeds to walk into the temple and open up a can on the people that are fleecing the people that he loves. Right? Throwing over tables. Jesus was tough. He was not passive. He was not weak. He was not soft. He was not cowardly. You don't murder Mr. Rogers. Right? They, they didn't hammer on Jesus' cross. Crimes accused of, too nice a guy. Right? What we see in the life of Jesus is that Jesus takes responsibility, and, and there was a toughness to Jesus. There was a grit to Jesus. The, the scripture says this. He actually had to set his face or his jaw like flint towards Jerusalem. To walk out his calling required intestinal fortitude. And then in addition to that, Jesus is not just one that takes responsibility and one that is tough. Jesus is tender. And I don't want you to miss this. Um, Jesus loved people well. Jesus was not afraid to weep. Jesus loved kids enjoyed children. Jesus actually was a good listener. Jesus was so stinking humble that he was willing to leave the comfort and safety of heaven to be born in a barn so that he might be broken and afflicted so that he could relate with the weakness and the fragility of human beings. There's a tenderness in that. There's a sweetness in that. Jesus was a safe place for broken women. Jesus walks up to a well one day, and there's this woman that's just been passed around. And she's just ashamed of the fact that she's lived this life of immorality. She she knows that she's jacked up. She's shacking up with a man and trading sex for rent. Her experience with men up to this point has either been 
They've looked down on her and judged her, or they've used her. And Jesus shows up one day, and he engages this gal's heart. And he fights for her soul. He doesn't use her, and he doesn't discount her. He comes and humbly serves her. We as men need to repent of both chauvinism, bravado, the machismo culture where we thump our chest. We need to repent of that trash. There needs to be a brokenness and a tenderness in us. And we also need to repent of passivity and cowardice. And we need to allow the grace of Jesus Christ to strengthen us, to form our identities, and to send us out into our culture and into our families to represent Jesus as humble, tough, tender men that take responsibility for those around us. So we're going to take a break, and I don't want to play grab butt during this great break. I want you to take a minute, and we're going to take 10 minutes, in fact, and I want you to spread out and I want you to just get honest with Jesus. And I want you to ask the Spirit of God to show you where are you embracing a faux strength, right? A false self, a false identity, a, um, a false source of strength that, that's either about your ability to suck it up or your job or how people look at you and perceive you or how pure you think you can be. I, I just want you to ask the Lord to show you where is your strength not grace-driven, but it's a faux strength. It's a false strength. It's a, It's a counterfeit strength. And I want you to repent. And then I want you to ask the Lord to show you where are you shirking your responsibility? Where is there passivity or cowardice? And I want you to repent. And then what I want you to do is ask that your identity would be so formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would be so rooted and grounded in who Jesus is, that you would be a grace-strengthened man, not a self-strengthened man, but a man who's so changed by the gospel that you actually are willing to lay down your lives as you see how deeply and fully Christ laid down his life for you. And, and then we're going to come back, um, God willing, and we're going to talk about how grace-strengthened men then turn and help build other grace-strengthened men. We'll do that quickly. So 10 minutes. We're going to just jump back into the next verse. So remember what we're talking about. We're talking about a healthy, thriving, masculine culture that's different than the culture out there, that's different than the vacuum that's been created in the church. And the foundation of that healthy, masculine culture, I think Paul's driving at in this text is, is that we need grace-strengthened men. Um, we're not self-strengthened men, grace-strengthened men. And then he's going to go on to sort of flesh out what a grace-strengthened man looks like. What is a, how does a grace-strengthened man engage other men? If Timothy is really strengthened by the grace of God that's in Christ Jesus, what's going to happen? What does his life look like? What happens in the culture of the church that Timothy's a part of? Um, let's pick up in verse 2. Right after he tells him to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, I love this. He says, And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Grace-strengthened men help build great other grace-strengthened men. 
And what he tells Timothy is, Timothy, the way I'm discipling you, the way I'm serving you, the way I'm reminding you of the gospel, you're to turn around and find guys that are going to do the exact same thing, and then they're to turn around and find guys that they can do the exact same thing with. The goal of men's culture is not just men's ministry. It's grace-strengthened men helping build other grace-strengthened men who help to turn around and build other grace-strengthened men. What this means is that the work of discipleship is way more than a program. It's a lifestyle of sharing what Jesus is doing in your life and serving the brothers around you. The lack of maturity and growth that's often found in churches, and in particular men's cultures and churches, is because too often we posture ourselves as consumers versus contributors. And and what we have is we have a, a culture of guys that in essence are spiritual gluttons. Spiritual gluttons. So imagine a dude that just is pounding protein shakes day after day, but he never throws any iron, right? Like the dude's drinking protein shakes, but he ain't going to the gym. What's going to happen? Uh, well, he, he's not going to get fit. He's going to be gross, right? Dude's going to look like Job of the Hut before too long. And, and that's really what happens in the church. We, we've got a lot of guys that are pounding spiritual food. Um, they're hearing good sermons, and they're, they're hearing great talks, and they're part of workshops, and they're going to community group, but they're not turning around and burning any spiritual calories, building other grace-strengthened men. And what Timothy is being exhorted to from Paul is this, hey man, you got to actually put into practice what you're learning, bro. You, you got to give it to somebody. You got to turn around and give away what's been given to you. And what he's saying is not just for Timothy, who is a, a leader in the church, this is just the reality for what it means to be a Christian. It's not just elders, deacons, ordained ministers, missionaries, apostles to China, people with TV shows. Um, This is just about being a Christian, man. We're all called to make disciples. And it requires men to disciple men. This is, I think, what the Bible would would hold up as the model. Um, Dudes disciple dudes and ladies disciple ladies. And the only way to have a really robust men's culture is for guys to engage this. Bud Wilkinson was a great Oklahoma football coach. And I love what he says about football. Listen to this. He says, I defied football is 22 men on the field desperately needing rest and 22,000 fans in the stands desperately needing exercise watching them. <laughs> like, if that's not the church, I don't know what is. What, what we tend to build in the church is this weird culture where there's a, there's a few dudes doing all the heavy lifting and most of the other guys are watching them and clapping for them on Sundays and saying, hey, pastor, great sermon, great talk. And that's just totally contrary to a biblical church. A biblical church is grace-strengthened men building other grace-strengthened men. It's turning around and discipling other dudes. He says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, the gospel reality, the truth of the word of God, what Jesus has accomplished for you, entrust this to faithful men. And it doesn't stop there. Who will be able to teach others also? This is a culture he's trying to build. And what's needed in the church today is for that culture to be driven by guys. There are more ladies discipling in our churches than there are men. There are more ladies sharing what they've learned than there are men. Um, Going back to the sociologist I mentioned before, he did a study of a really thriving, healthy boys' school. And the lead master, the headmaster of that school, is a guy named Mr. LaRouque. And here's what he says. You can't assume that boys today know these things, the essence of masculinity. Many of them don't, but they may be taught. A boy does not naturally grow up to be a gentleman. You need a community of men showing boys how to behave. And that's what we have here. 
He goes on and says, when it comes to showing boys how a gentleman behaves, how a gentleman interacts with women, how he responds to adversity, how he serves his community, there is no substitute for having a male role model. Um, masculinity is something that is learned. It's something we grow up into. And the big idea of the church, think about this, friends, is that it's really God's family. We're, we're God's household. And the point is not just programs and organization. The point is that we would be the family of God and under Father God's care through the work of Jesus the Son. We grow up into maturity and we disciple each other. We take care of each other. We get each other's backs. What this means is that older men need to get with younger men, and younger men need to get with older men, and younger men need to get with younger men and confess sin and grow, and older men also need to get with older men. So what I would say is this. Um, how many guys in this room, just raise your hand, how many guys in this room have been married for 10 or less years? You've been married for 10 or less years. Okay. Um, now, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Now, if in the last, not including this men's retreat, but if in the last, um, if in the last seven days uh, you actually got some advice, coaching, mentoring from an old, old, older dude on how to be a lover of your wife, a steward of your home, if, if you did get coaching, um, then you keep your hand up. Everybody else put your hand down. Hey, I'm not doing this to dog you out. I'm just doing this to show you guys the reality of what's happening in our churches and my church is the same. It's totally jacked up. Um, we need, you can put your hands down, we need younger dudes getting coached and mentored and led by older dudes. So let, let me speak to the older dudes real fast and then let me talk to the younger dudes. If you have gray hair, you're needed in this church. Right? Um, you are not, as a Christian, allowed to go to spiritual Florida. There is no spiritual Florida for Christians. <laughs> and the beauty of your church is that God's blessed you to have a bunch of young men in their 20s. The most, the most unlikely thing to find in an American church is a man in his 20s. Did you guys know that statistically? Um, that is the least reached demographic of, of men in the American church. And your church is blessed. You got all these young men in your church. Now, older fellows, I get that they are a pain in the butt to disciple and lead. Um, we constantly have talks about discipleship and leadership in our church, and we encourage the younger guys to reach out to the older guys and older guys to reach out to the younger guys. And inevitably, three weeks in, I got some type A um, business dude in his 50s that comes up to me and says, man, I had appointments with three of those guys that you talked to me about, and they no-showed. I'm like, yeah, welcome to my freaking world. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's, I call that Tuesday. Um, but that didn't mean we stopped trying. <laughs> uh, so here's what that means. If you're a younger guy, there are things that you're not going to know innately about how to, how to love a woman well. Can you, just, can you just admit that? There's things that you don't know about working a job to the glory of God. You just don't know how to do it. There's things that you don't know about how to schedule and how to manage life and how to discipline children and how to make love to a woman and how to have a bank account that's not a total train wreck. There's just things you don't know. And, and guess what? God in His grace wants you to know those things, but you know how He's going to answer your prayer to know those things? He's not going to manifest a, you know, uh, instructional video hologram in your bedroom or the Holy Spirit's unpacking how to balance your checkbook. <laughs> he's going to use another dude to teach you how to do that. Um, he, he's not going to show up 
you know, in a burning bush and say, this is how you communicate with your wife. She's not going to do it, man. He's going to use another dude. He's actually going to demonstrate his love and grace and wisdom through an older man that knows how to do it. So, younger man, let me just tell you, you, you need training, you need discipleship, you need to reach out to godly older guys. Older guys, you need to be around these younger men as well. Otherwise, you're going to start thinking, you're going to start believing your own press that you have all the answers because you're not in situations that push you back to realizing how much you don't. Right? So, older men, you've got to have a humility to love and pursue younger men, not in an idealistic fashion. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. Your wish dream of community actually destroys real community. So when you bring your wish dream of church to church, this is the ideal church, this is how it should go, you actually destroy the reality of community. Because there is no ideal community on this side of heaven. And the reality is you're only able to engage in an imperfect church with imperfect people that's never going to be your ideal. Do you, do you know what? I'm like one of the most um, visionary, idealistic guys about church that has ever lived. I, I have such a vision for what our church should be at home, and it's never, ever, ever going to be that. It's just never going to be that. And when I try to demand that it is that, I actually destroy the reality of what God's actually doing in our church. So older men, you're going to have to let go of the ideal of what discipleship and mentoring is, and you're going to have to step into the reality, which means it's messy and it's frustrating and it's slow. Younger dudes, you're, you're going to have to give up the ideal of having one like Obi-Wan Kenobi mentor that knows everything. <laughs> Can I just say, that guy's, well, unless you get John Lamferman to be your mentor and then you get that. But there's only one of those dudes. So you know what that means? You're, you're going to have to punt on finding a one-shop stop for everything you need to know. There are guys that are older in this church that will kill it when it comes to learning how to operate in the spiritual disciplines. They're just going to kill it. There's older guys that can teach you how to pray and teach you how to read your Bible. They may not be the same guys that can teach you um, how to invest wisely for the future. They're not always the same guy. It may be, but it's probably not. There's guys that have fantastic marriages and they learn the hard way and they can sit you down and talk to you about how to make love to a woman starting in the kitchen by serving her and loving her. And they can teach you that. Right? But it might be not the same guy that can teach you how to um, engage and discipline your children. It might be a different guy. And so the beauty of community, the beauty of the church, is that we're this many-membered man where there's different gifts and there's different experiences and there's different people, and we need one another, and that's why you have to engage in community. Grace-strengthened men do what? They build grace-strengthened men. And, and here's what's so rad about this. This is, this is amazing. Uh, when does this start in your, in your walk with Jesus? What, once you've gone to seminary? No, man, from jump, right? Like the day you get born again, you're to turn around and start teaching what you know, which may just be, hey, man, let me tell you what Jesus did to me. It's crazy. I don't even understand it fully, but here's what he did. Let me explain that to you. You teach what's been given to you. You give what's been given to you. If not, you're going to be spiritually obese like the dude at the gym pounding protein shakes and never lifting a weight. Right? Grace-strengthened men build other grace-strengthened men. And then, nextly, so what's needed are grace-strengthened men, and grace-strengthened men build grace-strengthened men. And then, thirdly, grace-strengthened men share the load together. Look what he says in 2 Timothy 2, 3. Um, and, and I just sort of picture Paul. He's older. He's tired. He loves Jesus. Um, he's feeling the reality that it would actually be better to die and go be with Jesus. Remember, he's the guy that said that. It's actually better if I go be with Jesus. That, that's kind of preferable 
to me now. I want to finish my race. I want to see Jesus. My body's aching. I'm tired. I'm exhausted from the conflict. I feel the daily pressure and burden of all the churches. But you know, it's better for you guys if I stay. So I'm going to keep serving. I'm going to keep loving. And, and that Paul writes these words. Here's what he says. Share, verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is just Paul saying, hey, Timothy, man, um, get under this with me. Get under this with me, brother. Um, I, I feel the weight of this. And, and I know ultimately i got to cast the burden on the Lord, but I need a brother who also will get under the burden with me. Share this with me, man. Get under the yoke with me of caring for men and leading in this culture. Grace-strengthened men are called to share the load. They're called to run into pain and brokenness like Jesus did in his incarnation. They're called to engage in the community that they're a part of. They're, they're called to be those that are willing to suffer for those around them. Um, I think your elders are doing a really good job in this church. Really good job. I, I think you got some really godly, amazing men that I've met in your church. Um, I respect your leaders like crazy. This church has a rich heritage. I mean, look around this room. The fact that there's 140, 150 guys that are giving up two days to come and worship Jesus and be together, this is a huge win. You have a great leadership team. But here's, I think, what they would say to you if they could just be totally vulnerable and honest. Um, there's not enough of them, and they can't possibly get done all that needs to be done, and they would plead with you as men at this conference. Brother, share the load with me. Share the load with me. Um, come and help us do this. Come and help us care for these baby Christians. Come and help us reach out to these people that are going to hell if they don't hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come and help us figure out how to lead this church to where Jesus wants it to be. Come and share the load. We, we don't want to be little Protestant Pope dictators. We actually want to be elders that train and equip and share the load together with the saints. So what does that look like? And, and here's where we're going to end. What does that look like? Um, what is a grace-strengthened man, not operating in his own strength, but the strength of grace through the gospel of Jesus? What, what is a grace-strengthened man that's building other grace-strengthened men and share the load? What does he actually look like? Paul just gives us three pictures that are a great place to land this. The pictures are of soldiers, athletes, and farmers. Soldiers, athletes, and farmers. Look at verse 4. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So that first picture of a grace-strengthened man building other grace-strengthened men is the picture of a soldier. Here's what this means quickly. It means, first of all, you've been enlisted. You've been straight drafted, right? God pursued you. God saved you. He purchased you, and you're actually not your own anymore. So that whole idea of, um, are, are, is Jesus your Savior or is he also your Lord? That's just stupid, Right? He just grabbed you from hell and made you his. He just grabbed you. He pursued you. He grabbed you. He purchased you. You're not your own. You're bought with the price. You belong to him. That's good news for you for all eternity. That's actually great news for you. And so you've been enlisted, man. And what that means is the greatest question is not, what do I want to do? Or what do I feel like doing? Or even what does my wife want to do? The greatest question is, Jesus, what do you want? You belong to Jesus. You've been enlisted. You've been purchased. And, and that means that you're under orders. You're under orders. No military man walks up to his sergeant and says, hey, I, I know that this is where you want me to be and what you want me to do, but I just really feel like uh, I don't feel led. 
right? He, he's going to rip your head off. <laughs> Don't feel led. You're under orders, man. So friends, I would just say that there's a time to be led into specific points of ministry. And there's a time to just realize that you're a soldier, you've been purchased, and you don't get to vote on whether or not it's your calling to be a grace-strengthened man that builds other grace-strengthened men. Like, like you don't get to opt out of discipleship if you're a Christian. Oh, but I'm super busy. Um, well, you know what? In the context of busyness, you better figure out how to follow Jesus because you don't belong to yourself. So you don't get to opt out of discipleship. You don't get to opt out of growing and following Jesus and helping build other grace-strengthened men if you're a Christian. And then soldiers also, this is interesting. Um, I don't know if you know this, but soldiers take hills, which means it's a fight and they get shot at. This is hard and difficult stuff that we're talking about. We're a battle. We're talking about real warfare, real difficulty, real pain, real hardship, real people's messes. At, at a conference like this, it's so easy to say, yeah, we're going to go home and get after it. And then you get home and your wife is broken and sinful and has needs. And you're like, oh man, this is way harder than the idealized version of me coming in with my cape flapping in the wind and just <laughs> dropping the gospel on her. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Soldiers take hills. They get shot at. Um, sometimes they die in the line of duty. What God's called you to as a man, it's hard. It's difficult. You're going to get shot at. You might die in the line of duty. It's worth it. Soldiers carry loads. They carry loads. Uh, they carry heavy burdens. They bear one another's burdens. And sometimes when their brothers get wounded, they put them on their back and carry them. Soldiers have to stay on mission. They have to know what the objectives of their commander-in-chief are, <coughs> and they, they fulfill those. They carry those out through the chain of command. You have a commander-in-chief. His name is Jesus. You're on mission. You don't get to decide whether or not you want to know non-Christians. Right? Can I, can I just say that again? Like, you just don't get to opt out of, not, of, of knowing non-Christians. You belong to Jesus. Your calling is to go into the world and make disciples. You've got a commander-in-chief. You're on mission. Are we going to be a missional church or not? Well, I don't know. Do you belong to Jesus? Because if Jesus is the boss and senior leader, you have to be on mission. You don't get to decide. And that means also as soldiers that you actually have to have a band of brothers. You're not alone. You actually have to be known. And, and that doesn't mean that you have this idealized version of finding the perfect Christian friends and riding a tandem bicycle with matching sweaters together every Saturday. <laughs> you, you, may not have, you may not have a David-Jonathan relationship. right? You may not have a perfect mentor. You may not have a bunch of dudes that totally understand your stage of life or your particular their difficulties or what the demands of your career are. You may not have that guy, but you got to have guys. You got to have brothers in your life. You got to confess sin. You've got to make yourself vulnerable. You got to do life with other dudes. What that means as soldiers is that we are called to be first responders that move to the mess. And he says, don't get entangled in civilian pursuits. What does this mean? I, I like the way Piper puts it. We're to have a wartime, not a peacetime mentality. Friends, um, your life is really short. It's really short. It's like a wisp of smoke. It's going to be here, and then it's going to be gone. We're not to waste our lives. There is to be a sense of deep rest as Jesus is our Sabbath, but there's also simultaneously the sense of gospel urgency that we want to run the race well and finish well. Right? Both of those need to happen. So he says, soldiers. That's the first picture of these grace-strengthened men that build other grace-strengthened men. And then he says, athletes. Look at verse 5. Um, 
I'm about to lose all the artists in the room, about to do some sports analogies, so you're welcome. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Here's what he's saying. Um, he competes, and that requires discipline and training. Discipline and training. You're not saved by living a life of discipline, but God demands that following your salvation, there actually is a life of discipline that you live. And it doesn't contribu contribute to the finished work of Jesus, but it helps you learn how to follow Jesus and be more fruitful for Jesus. This means just as an athlete has to train and get better at what he does, he has to practice, you actually have to train. We have to train in learning how to read the Bible and pray and repent of sin and love our neighbors and love our wives and serve our kids and be generous with our money. You have to train. And you know what that just means? It means we don't know what the heck we're doing without training. We don't know. And so we've got to be intentional and train. This means that we're to fight for the prize. We're to fight for the prize. You're on a race. And you've got to keep the goal of that race in mind, which is finishing by God's grace, faithfully loving and serving Jesus for the rest of your life. It means it's going to require team effort. Again, you're going to have to have brothers as an athlete. And even if you do a solo team, even if you're an MMA guy or a wrestling guy, any of those guys that have really trained will tell you it takes just as much of a team to train in a solo sport as it does a team sport. You've got to have brothers. You've got to have guys that will push you and get your back and spar with you and press you to the next level. You need that in your life. And then you got to keep the rules or you get DQ'd, right? This just means that you don't get to set the rules for your life. You get to come under the rules that God's unpacked in his Bible, right? Friends, look right here. You don't get to decide if it's your responsibility to be the head of your home. You just don't because Jesus said so in the Bible. You don't get to decide to divorce your wife without biblical grounds. You just don't get to do that. You belong to Jesus. It's in the Bible. She may be difficult, but you married her. And now it's your ministry to serve her and love her and pray for her and honor her. Are, are you hearing me? Yeah. You just don't get to opt out of obeying Jesus. You belong to Jesus. You don't get to be married and have a girlfriend. You don't get to continue on in unrepentant sin without confessing it and asking brothers to help you figure out how to war against it. You don't get to do that. Um, we surrender to his word. We, we submit to Jesus. We follow Jesus. And then the last analogy, we'll end with this. He says, this picture of this gray strengthened group of men that are working together, it's this picture of soldiers on mission fighting together. It's this picture of athletes training and competing together. And then I just love this last one because it's just super humbling. It's also a picture of farmers. Farmers. He says, it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. See, I think what he's doing here is he's just reminding us that Timothy's labor as a gospel minister, as a grace-strengthened man trying to build other grace-strengthened men, he, he's trying to remind him that he does have a responsibility, but that God's ultimately sovereign, and he has to be humbly dependent upon God for the fruit. Here's what this means. We plant the seed. We tend the ground. We do everything we can to serve and protect that seed. But we can't make it grow. We can't make it rain. We can't make the sun shine. We have to do what God's called us to do, and then we have to humbly wait upon Him and trust Him. What this means? It means it's your job to love your wife, but you know what? You can't make her respect you in return. 
You may be a guy that's going home to a wife that is not desirous of submitting to you as the leader of your home. And you know what? Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say, husbands, make your wives submit. Do you know that's not in the Bible? What's in the Bible is husbands, love your wives like Jesus loves the church. So here's what a farmer does. A farmer does what he's responsible to do. He plants and waters. All you can do for your girl is plant and water. You can't change her heart. You can love her, though. You can serve her, and you can wait on the sovereign God who can change the hearts of kings. He can certainly change the heart of your wife when he wants to. Right? you got non-Christians in your life. Your job is to be the farmer. It's to plant gospel seeds. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them what Jesus did for you. Tell them about the reality of the cross. You're planting seeds. You're planting seeds. But can you make their heart come alive? No, you can't. You can't. You can't talk them into it. It's not a timeshare that you're selling. You can plant seeds. You can water it in prayer, but you can't make it grow. That's God's sovereign territory. right? You as a leader can plant the seed of having a good strategy and a good structure for your organization, for your church, for your business, for your ministry. You can do a good job of leadership development and training, but you know what? Ultimately, you can't make it grow. That's the territory of God. We do our best and then we wait on him because we're farmers. We're not little gods. We're farmers. And those farmers need one another when it's time to harvest. So, friends, my prayer for you is that year that you would together Step into a kind of strength that's going to be really peculiar and weird to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors, to your city. It's going to be peculiar because it's really weird to be this guy that admits your weakness and insufficiency and then kind of boast in that and then turns around and celebrates and revels in the fact that in your weakness, God's strong and he's actually the one that's going to help you. It's a weird thing. It's a peculiar thing. It's a weird thing to be a man that takes responsibility. It's weird. Um, it's weird to not just be a thing for yourself. Or it's weird to be a man, a grown man, that confesses sin to other grown men. Our culture thinks that's super goofy. But we're supposed to be weird. We're supposed to be a peculiar people. We're supposed to be strange. And it's supposed to be a kind of strangeness that's actually strangely enticing to the world that lives around us. So I just want to end today by praying for you. I want to pray that you would be grace-strengthened men, not in your own strength, not the false strength of idols, but the strength of God in Christ. I want to pray that you would turn around and build other grace-strengthened men. I'm going to pray that you would keep those pictures in front of you. You're a soldier. You're an athlete. You're a farmer. You're in a fight. You need brothers. You're training because you don't know what to do. You got to train. You got to get better. You got to grow. You got to sharpen. You got to deepen. You're a farmer, and that means it's your job to plant, and it's your job to water, but you can't make it grow. You've got to humbly wait on the Lord. And then when he makes it grow, you can't take the credit for it. My wife is really thriving now. Let me do a workshop for y'all. <laughs> no, man. Like, you didn't change that girl's heart. Let's stand up.